Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism Proxies and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Jeffrey Kairam. Jeffrey is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the Lebanese American University and also a research associate at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and Middle East Initiative. He's the editor of the absolutely wonderful The Middle East in 1958, Reimagining a Revolutionary Year, published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury in 2020. He's working on a book on US, foreign, uh, US intelligence and foreign policy in the Middle East. He's also got a range of, of articles pertaining to some, some things that we're going to talk about today, including uh, COVID-19, education, teaching in a time of, of crisis in Lebanon and at a time of, of the pandemic. So I'm really looking forward to this session. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Simon, for inviting me and thank you for uh, hosting this episode. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. There's so many different ways um, that we could take this this discussion. So many different things to uh, to cover. But I must first start by um, by asking Jeffrey what what got you into academia in the first place. What what piqued your interest in in politics? Well, um, being like I, I was born in America, but I actually my parents are Lebanese, so I was raised uh, in Lebanon. I got my education in Lebanon, and it's very hard not to think about what's not political in a place like Lebanon and widely in the Middle East. So my passion for politics was not one that I just figured out that I want to do uh, a certain major that I like, but it was more sort of driven uh, for the aspects of change. And when I say change, I would say to a certain extent, really understand how political systems function, truly understand different types of governance, but more importantly, to really understand what can I do to bridge the gap between very abstract concepts when it comes to how we talk about the state, how we talk about power, how we talk about ideologies, and what can I do in order to really bridge the gap between theory and the world around us. So in part, my passion uh, really stems from the fact that I wanted to have a voice and be able to share my passion for the inner workings of politics, uh, not only as a discipline, but also more importantly, as a way of life. That's really interesting. And it, it echoes so many of the, the points made by other other Lebanese scholars and activists that we've had on the on the podcast who talk about Lebanon being the reason, essentially, if you're going to boil it down to one factor. I would agree to a certain extent that it's, it's always a fascinating, uh, I would say, subject of discussion, even though one would have to think that at the end of the day, we are living in this country and yeah. I am a Lebanese-American. Uh, there's always a very fine line between being passionate about looking at Lebanon as a, an item to study. Of course, from yeah. From a scholarly standpoint, but also being fascinated by everyday challenges. Uh, and I'll be happy to talk more about what we mean by everyday challenges because they tend to change by the moment rather than by the year. But being able to find that middle ground category between advancing scholarship on the region, on Lebanon, but also being able to be an activist mm. when it comes to pushing forward the change that we want to see rather than just talk about and write about, uh, this has been a high highlight of being back in Lebanon. I've been back in Lebanon uh, and teaching at Lebanese American University since August 2018. So relatively speaking, I'm, it's, it's been less than three years that I'm back in Lebanon. 
Uh, but it's been fascinating with everything that's been going on with the beginning of the uprising in October 2019 and then living through an ever-growing economic crisis and the pandemic. Uh, to a certain extent, it's, it's always important to take a step back and, and think about the object of your study and whether these lines could actually hold. Like These lines are becoming very blurry when, when one thinks about being a Lebanese citizen and but also at the same time writing and observing what's going on in the country and sometimes finding no answers whatsoever. So from the research standpoint, that is fascinating for all scholars, right? To be able to constantly find this puzzle and this puzzle having no clear answers yet. But also it is uh, overwhelmingly difficult uh, with the lack of agency that we as scholars and citizens sometimes confront when we are living through very harsh times uh, and living through moments where we don't really have control over how they're going to change or how they're going to develop. Exactly, yeah. So it's been a, a quiet three years then since you arrived in Beirut. Well, I would say, uh, Simon, and honestly, I would say that the first year was really like, uh, I'm not going to say a dream year because we were seeing the writing on the wall that yeah. a crisis is going to hit at some point. People are talking about the Ponzi schemes, uh, it's gonna it's gonna explode, but I would say that it would be fair. It would be fair to say that no one saw what unraveled in October 2019, specifically as that opening moment, as something that was going to happen and take that shape and form. Lebanon is not an exception to thinking about moments of revolution or moments of uprisings or thinking about uh, politics of change and protests in the street. We've seen many similar episodes, and when I was in America, I would follow very closely what. My my colleagues and friends were all doing. But what's fascinating about being back in Lebanon, which is that what I would say was normal in the first year of so, um, I, w- I wouldn't call it right now that it has changed drastically as much as I would say, maybe it was one of those realities that we, we as citizens, but also as scholars, would like to contextualize and would like to take a step, take a step back from, but also in reality, it's very difficult. Uh, to be able to say that we saw this coming and we were able to write about it and we were able to reflect about it. We need the vantage point of time to be able to properly reflect. But I would say to a certain extent, these three years have been have included a fair share of ups and downs, some doubt, uh, some very important moments of optimism, but also very, 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 uh, well, I would say harsh moments of true uh, pessimism when it comes to, well, what can we do? How can we change things? Is it going to get any better, or are we just in the sinking ship and nothing's going to change? So I would say, if I were to capture these three years, it's been bittersweet on so many levels to be back working, uh, living, but also being able to uh, circumvent many of the challenges that uh, almost over 90% of people in Lebanon have to face on a daily basis. So that's been a really uphill battle for everyone. Yeah. One of the, the... The high points, I guess, one of the, the points of success and achievements of your time back in Beirut was the, the publication of this book, uh, The Middle East in 1958. Now, we're going to hopefully do a, a session talking about this because I think it, it warrants a, a set of reflections in and of itself. But uh, just for, for people who've not seen it or or got hold of a copy of it yet, could you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do with this collection, please, Jeffrey? I left Lebanon to pursue my PhD. It got me thinking more about 1958 as an important moment, but really as an important moment that I've seen 
scattered books and articles about. So there, there is a hefty amount of scholarship on 1958. But what was fascinating to me was really to understand the connections that go beyond Lebanon, that draw to Syria, that think about Egypt, that really go back to Algeria. But more importantly, for my training in international relations, truly think that if this is a moment that was revolutionary for people and movements and actors in the Middle East, then definitely that agency should be traced and that agency should be brought to the fore to look at the impact of these revolutionary cycles and moments and uprisings in the Middle East and whether they had an impact on great powers at the time. Hmm. So what I wanted to do with this volume and what I really wanted to expose in this volume is that once you think about revolutionary processes and trends in the Middle East, obviously there is a very important element that we can think of in terms of the agency of local actors. But I wanted to a certain extent to bring to the table a discussion that's going to look at both the agency of local movements and why they were pushing for change within their own societies in a period of decolonization, in a period of state formation, and a period that we saw the rise of authoritarianism and the military dictatorships. But I also wanted to bring that uh, lens to really bear on questions that have to do with uh, the impact of this moment in the Middle East. And here we're talking about the mid-50s and then up to 1958 and the impact that what was occurring in Algeria and had an impact on France, what was occurring in Syria had an impact on America, what was occurring in Egypt had an impact on Britain. So I really wanted to, do, to trace uh, the direct of, if you want, of change, not only from a unidirectional standpoint from the West to the East, they refer to that logic and be able to show that when we are talking about these moments of change, these moments of uh, transformation, obviously the impact is, uh, is, I would say, wider than expected and wider at least than what has been written about in existing scholarship. So, Existing scholarship is uh, stellar when it comes to looking at the formation of the United Arab Republic, what was going on in Lebanon during the political crisis and armed insurrection, uh, what was going on in Jordan in terms of different coups, thinking about what was going on in Iran or Saudi Arabia, and all of these are cases that are covered in the volume. But what was really missing was really drawing the linkages and drawing the connections on a local level, regional level, and global level that really speak to the multifaceted and multi-layered uh, approaches, if you want, but also characteristics of these revolutionary times. And this is where also I don't think about revolutions and the volume does not consider that that moment that transpired in 1958 was a moment of either success or failure, but actually looks at the long, long array of the process of when the, these uprisings began. And to a large extent, the book is foregrounded in the conclusion by talking about its relevance to the first wave of uprisings, the second wave of uprisings, if we want to talk about what began in 2018, and then what we witnessed in Lebanon in 2019, and what some scholars are talking about right now as the beginning of the third wave of uprisings after COVID-19, uh, or to a certain extent, once we are in the post-COVID-19 uh, pandemic moment. Hmm. So the volume is really focusing on a, a moment during the Cold War, but it's drawing these wider linkages to uh, recent developments to show that 
moments of crisis, moments of transformation, moments of resistance and dissent, when it comes to state formation, when it comes to building powerful institutions, when it comes to understanding the capacity of political systems and the changes that are occurring in the region are not ones that should be taken out of context. So there's nothing new, if you want, about the first wave or the second wave if we don't really look at the longer context of uh, social change, political change, uprisings and revolutions in the region. And this is something that the volume, and I really encourage uh, uh, everyone to, if, if possible, to be able to get a copy, to really look at this moment not as a moment that's exceptional or a moment that is out of the larger context, but actually as a moment that speaks to a longer history of contestation and issues that have to do with governance, issues that have to do with sectarianism, issues that have to do with power sharing, issues that have to do with elite-based elite arguments versus arguments that have to do with the masses, forms of political mobilization, forms of social mobilization, the nature of grievances, the lack of socioeconomic opportunities, problems of unemployment. So much of the rhetoric and much of the research that's produced in this volume to a certain extent, if you drop the dates, would be very similar to many of the issues that we are still talking about. Even 10 years after the first wave of Arab uprisings, we are still talking about the same issues when it comes to how states should function or what we mean by the youth or unemployment or problems that have to do with socioeconomic problems and problems between different classes and society. Thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to having this, this more detailed session on the, on the book because I, I think I share your, your view here that, that to understand what happened in 20, 2010, 2011, and indeed what's happening now, we have to go back across the, the long durée, if you will, because that's where the roots of all of these different factors are found. So I'm really looking forward to, to going into detail with that with you, hopefully in the, in the not-too-distant future. But I think we do need to speak a bit about the, uh, about the present, if that's okay. Uh, you've, you've highlighted some of the challenges that, that Lebanon in particular is facing. I thought it would be really useful, particularly for, for us uh, in the UK, who are currently under our third lockdown, to maybe hear from you some of the some of the things you found in your in your engagement with that topic and in your reflections on on teaching at a time of, of crisis so maybe um, if you can just tell us a little bit about that then and maybe how how different crises affect things differently and affect pedagogy in different ways this is great simon thank you so much for bringing this up um uh, let me just begin by saying to, to a large extent that the world is dealing with this pandemic, and this is obvious, and, and all faculty members around the world, students, staff, different forms, different jobs, different workplaces are really like uh, trying to maneuver and trying to get out uh, of what's going on by really adopting and pushing for some practical uh, solutions. The problem with Lebanon is that in addition to really dealing with COVID-19, um, we've had the eruption of a uh, leaderless, massive uprising on October 17, 2019. Uh, that was preceded to an extent, to a certain extent, by the beginning of an economic meltdown. And I would say the beginning, where we can pinpoint the date when the currency started to, the devaluation of the currency began in July 2019. Mm -hmm. So. 
when we think about the currency devaluation, the economic meltdown, uh, it set the stage for the perfect storm that began with COVID-19 in February 2000, uh, February 2020 in Lebanon, when the first cases of uh, COVID-19 uh, started to appear and we went into our first lockdown. So I'm just providing this very brief introduction to mention that we really had uh, several interrelated crises that actually did not make it easy at all to be able to maneuver with practical solutions. Some of them that I'm highlighting in, in articles that I have uh, talking about teaching during moments of revolution, uprisings, and but more importantly during COVID-19, was really, well, to what extent can we um, maintain uh, faculty-student interactions in a virtual classroom and not be able to a certain extent, think about the larger problems that exist outside either a traditional classroom or a non-traditional one. And let me be more specific here and mention, uh, at the beginning of COVID-19 in Lebanon, already uh, more than 80% of people in Lebanon lost their purchasing power. So the semester begins, we go to class, and everything that we're talking about really has to do with the economic crisis and what's going to happen with the value of the dollar, what's going to happen with people's savings in the banks, and whether there's going to be any future for students that are going to be graduating or anyone else living in this country. And once we have COVID-19, uh, the argument shifts to what, how can we maintain a degree of social normalcy? But the problem here is that when we think about it to the lens point of Lebanon, we are thinking about the ups and downs cycles of the uh, uprising that began in 2019. People were still taking to the street because one of the issues that we were demanding for in terms of activists, whether we're scholars, whether we're parts of different movements, or whether we're just really upset with what's going on in the country, none of them really materialized in a way that we can say led to some clear change or any of the socioeconomic reform or social reform that we're pushing for materialized in any shape or form. So people are still in the street with COVID-19 and more importantly with the ever-growing economic crisis. So when it comes to teaching, it became very difficult to keep these problems outside the classroom. Mm. It's very easy to say that we're not we're gonna avoid them, but then it, things really uh, became very very difficult to avoid. Once, as faculty members, we had, if you want, to a certain extent, an access to people's uh, I would say private life. And here I'm talking about students in terms of what is home to them, what is home to them. It, this is where we got into the debate where. And this is something that I reflect on in the articles, that when we talk about the classroom, a classroom, in a traditional sense, does mitigate problems between different classes. It does mitigate, to a certain extent, socioeconomic differences. Everyone can sit on the table in the class and participate. But when it comes to home, this is where differences become much more salient. And I was on the receiving end of uh, students having a very poor internet connection, students not having the space to be able to participate effectively in class. And I was also really facing the same issues when it comes to maintaining some normalcy, keeping students, their spirits up high, keeping them positive, when most of the times we would have a very bad internet connection. Most of the times it became very difficult for students to be able to even purchase the textbook because of the currency devaluation. Many of the times where students had power outages, they could not upload their assignments or turn in essays by the deadline. So when you think about normal issues when it comes to teaching and all the disruptions that occurred in every corner of the earth, we have to add other layers to it in Lebanon. And these other layers really have to do with the everyday anxieties that students 
myself and everyone else in Lebanon were facing. What to do about shortages of medicine, what to do about basically lockdowns and curfews, what to do with a very poor internet connection, what to do with problems emanating from uh, maybe many of the parents of my students lost their jobs, became unemployed, what's going to happen next, how to keep their spirits up high when it comes to applying for graduate school, or if they're going to find jobs. And also at the same time, looking at the momentum of the uprising, and that was dwindling, and being able to say, well, all moments of change do take time, and that doesn't mean anyone's going to be able to predict once there's going to be another wave or another phase. But the idea of trying to remain a teacher, engage with helping students learn, guide them to learn about important concepts and issues in political science, but also being very sensitive of the world around us. And that is one of the most important challenges, I would say, and highlights is really maintaining that fine line between always reminding my students that I'm I'm also a human being. I also have these problems when it comes to medicine shortages, worried about family catching COVID-19, having savings in the bank that actually are on hold, uh, uh, really looking at thinking about purchasing power that has decreased, but also at the same time keeping their spirits uh, to a certain extent high while doing simulation crisis exercises, doing active learning exercise in political science when it comes to writing, when it comes to speaking, when it comes to working as groups. So what I would say in terms of challenges was really being able to say, is there a way out? And when I say is there a way out, how to maintain our sense of positivity as faculty, but also at the same time not falling victim to toxic positivity, that everything's going to be great, it's just a matter of a few months. And in reality, what I made, what I made clear to my students is that I, I, there, there's no room for us to be basically positive in a toxic way where we are being oblivious to what's going on all around us. But what's going to be important is to take stock of these problems, these difficulties, and trying to make the best out of it. And trying to make the best out of it has become a challenge on, on its own, because as I was mentioning just a few seconds ago, uh, the basic tools that we need for teaching, that we need for learning, are becoming much and much, I would say, scarce in Lebanon. Uh, in terms of books, in terms of stationery, in terms of internet connection, in terms of functioning laptops at home for students, functioning phones, to be able to connect to the classroom, be able to engage in discussion. Uh, uh, there are so many things that I can talk more about, but I'll leave it there for a moment if you want to talk about other issues as well. Well, there's so many things to pick up on there, Jeffrey, and it strikes me that the challenges are almost endless in, in every single direction, which, which points at a a mental health dimension, not just for, for students, but faculty as well, in order to to juggle all these myriad competing concerns and agendas and demands on, on time from family, friends, colleagues, and students. So it's, I mean, it is a, I used this, this term before while we were off air, but a perfect storm of, of things coming together. But in the Lebanese case, and in in, in other contexts as well, there's also, it strikes me, issues and concerns around questions of positionality with the, the underlying uh, questions about revolution and protests going on, with the, the issues pertaining to, to power sharing crises and, and um, protest around the, the, the blast in August. There's a, there's a need to, to balance one's own positionality against the pedagogical needs of, of students, 
but also the need to have a critical reflection on contemporary events from the sort of the intellectual backdrop. So it's it's balancing that as well. So how do you how do you bring in the the positionality dimension whilst also addressing all these other sensitivities and challenges? Well, well, to be, to be quite honest, I, I I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned August four. Uh, there's this, there as scholars, as you know, we we all like certain dates, right? We look at dates, we try to analyze temporality, we try to an- analyze path dependent moments, we try to look at critical junctures, trying to think of how did this moment really trigger or usher in a new phase of change. When I look at when I think about your question and think about my own sort of, if you want, uh, I would say boundaries that we all try to think of in terms of the faculty-student relationship. Much of what occurred in October 2019 brought an end to those boundaries. I'm not saying that uh, there isn't the positionality of a professor or a student or their or how they do things or how they function or in terms of professional norms and professional boundaries. However. What really was fascinating about the uprising, and and this is something that uh, my colleagues and I that will be contributing to the volume that we are co-editing, they're going to be talking about different elements that have to do with how did these lines become blurry. And these lines are really about these traditional sort of professional norms when it comes to what a student is expected to do, what a faculty member is expected to do. But these became very blurry after October 17. And what really made them even blurrier, if you want, was really what transpired after August 4. And again, the need for different groups, civil society organizations, civil society actors, faculty, staff, all across the board to again fill in the gap and fill in the void that's created by the state. Jeffrey, so can I stop you there just for one second? I'm really sorry, but what what do you mean by blurry and blurred? Can you just unpack that a little bit, please? So when 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 you are when you are basically taking to the street with your colleagues and you are trying to show students in the real world, right? What we mean by these very abstract political science concepts: change, democratization uprisings, revolutions. What does it mean to de-sectarianize the system? What does it mean to abolish political sectarianism from the country? What does it mean to create an alternative? It's all textbook definitions, right? But then when you keep on encouraging your students that if you don't like what you're saying, go to the ballot box, right? If you don't really like what you're witnessing and you want change, go do something about it. And then there's this perfect moment that occurs, right? And that perfect moment really puts an end to these very rigid structures of what a professor should be doing and what a student should be doing. So I was on a receiving end after October 17, tons and tons of emails from students that thank your professor for practicing what you've been preaching all this time. So when I say blurry, we no longer thought of looking at each other in the street, oh, I'm a faculty with a doctorate and you're a student or you're a worker or you're a business owner or you're a journalist or you're an activist. The uprising really erased these very rigid structures of power and really created an environment, I'm not going to say the entire time, but I'd say at least in the initial phase, created an environment that was all-inclusive and really demonstrated the intersectionality of grievances. So it was no longer based on the fact that there should be some distance between a faculty and a student and a staff member or others, but really became all 
everyone to a certain extent became united under the same cause. And that same cause was really bringing an end to this corrupt sectarian regime that has really failed to deliver on socioeconomic reforms, social political reforms for over 30 years. So the idea of blurring these categories was really one that many colleagues and myself had to face when we saw our students in the street. And when we saw our students in the street really pushing for what we're advocating in the classroom, that really sort of broke that, if you want, I would say non-organic uh, confines of the traditional classroom, right? Because you've been telling them for years in different courses, this is what happened in this revolution, this is what happened in that uprising, this is how we do change, this is what we mean by democratization, this is what we mean by states sliding back to authoritarianism. This is the difference between an autocrat and a, uh, I don't know, a liberal state. We, we constantly talk about these categories, that then when you see students in the street living them to a certain extent, or pushing for this change, this is where these categories become very blurry. And mm -hmm. this is where these categories are no longer tenable in a way of saying, we can really think about a professor really having some shape or form, a higher authority, if you want, over an actual student or someone else in society. And this is where things, to a certain extent, became not only blurry, but also allowed, it, allowed to a certain extent, for an inclusive platform. That's what I meant with the sure. blurriness aspect, getting... Uh, really uh, out, of, out of the window to a certain extent, at least at least in the initial phase, if you want. That's really helpful. Thank you. And it's it's really, really fascinating to hear you you talking like that. I've heard Basel Salouk talking in a similar way about this type of thing. But it's it's really interesting to, to hear to hear things from your perspective, but also how, how it changed in in November and, and the months onward. I wonder what what was the impact in that blurring of, of August 4 then? Did, did that have a similar impact or, or had, had that blurring already taken place to the extent that there was no more uh, to be blurred, if you will? Well, I, I would put it, I would put it, if, you, if you look at the timeline, Simon, we'd think about the initial period uh, from October 17 until the government actually submits their resignation and then there is a loss of momentum because... Yeah. The government orders uh, says that we're not, they're not going to allow any protesters anymore or activists to block any roads. So things go back to normal in November, November 2019. And then with COVID-19 in February, even though there was, there was never a day where we wouldn't hear of something occurring in Lebanon. The beginning of COVID really pushed people back into their silos, right? The beginning of COVID and the premature uh, speeches of success coming from the government that we've been able to fight off and contain corona and the world's going to look at Lebanon and draw on examples, really created an illusion of a government that is full of technocrats and not really politically motivated, even though that was debunked immediately. It did lead to a rift in the street, right? It did mm -hmm. lead to these uh, categories of power being recreated, these structures of power where some students felt that there's no need for them to be in the street anymore, faculty members thought that the battle right now is about institutional reform. It's no longer about being in the street. And you want to think about this getting deeper and deeper to a point where many individuals were no longer participating. And when I say many, I would say across the board from the ones that were at the beginning in October, really taking the street every day, were no longer as active. So what happened is that old structures of power resurfaced. And when I say old structures of power, there was a very big discourse coming from colleagues all across the board in Lebanon, that we need to give this government a chance, right? We don't want to judge it, prejudge it. Let's give it a chance, and then if it doesn't work, we take back to the streets. 
But that wasn't easy because of COVID-19 and because of growing anxiety, medicine shortages, currency devaluation. So just a few few days before the August 4 explosion, the value of the dollar that was pegged uh, to 1,500 really hit close to 10,000. And people were saying this is going to be the end of days, everyone's going to take to the street, we're going to see a new wave in the October 17 uprising. But that new wave did not emerge the, the way that people were predicting or what were hoping to happen. What happened is that on August 4, again and again, after the explosion, just a few days later, immediately we're talking about a few hours on August 4, then August 5, and then a very big demonstration on August 8, it was back to square zero to what transpired on October 17. No one was pushed to take the street, but there was a need. And that need really had to do with the fact that many colleagues lost their homes. Many friends had broken glass and shattered glass. Many died. Many went to the hospital. And again, very similar to what really pushed people to the street on October 17, again, we found ourselves in the street on August 8, only four days after the explosion, doing the same thing that we did before, still seeing students, getting dozens of emails from students. We have a sign here for food relief. We're cleaning debris, we're cleaning shattered glass. My, my partner and I, friends, we're all doing the same thing in an organic way, right? No one pushed mm-hmm. us to do this. Sure. We knew the state was failing. We knew the state basically was not going to do anything about it, and we had to fill that void again. The only major difference there, if you want, is that that reignited a second phase, a second major moment in the October uprising, bearing in mind that we still had COVID-19, and COVID-19 cases were up in the hundreds on a daily basis at that point in time. But all that fear was put aside because really this was an humanitarian crisis. I I, I would say out loud and on on this recording that this is the worst that Lebanon has seen. uh, And it's not not saying it's in its history or it's in existence, but maybe one of the worst crises that anyone in the world would ever want to witness or would ever want to be part of. So those lines, again, were were blurred all over again. But the only problem there is that the fear, constant fear of COVID-19, yeah, and the fear of repression from the government because the government did repress the demonstrators on August eighth, bearing in mind that the vigil on August eighth was really about what to do with the two hundred over two hundred people that were killed, over seven thousand that remained and injured, and over three hundred thousand people lost their homes and businesses, and the government started issued orders to the armed forces, and they were tear gassing protesters. We were tear gassed on August eighth only at the very beginning of the vigil, and then it got really nasty throughout the day. So from that standpoint, the element of fear, and then the element of COVID-19, and the growing currency devaluation economic crisis, would have, been, would have led to the expectation that people will not take to the street. But that was wrong, and people did take to the street. And again, I saw my students, colleagues, friends, were there all uh, basically to not only to show signs of solidarity, but also to be able to contest our government and what they're doing, and that pushed the government to resign. Unfortunately, the government is still there right now, and we are in a political debacle when it comes to the possibility of having a new government anytime soon, and maybe unleashing some of the promised loans that are going to come from the World Bank and IMF. But at least at that moment in time, the pressure in the street was so strong that we saw a repeat of the scenario that emerged in October 2019 with the resignation of Saad Hariri 13 days in, 14 days in. We saw the resignation of uh, Prime Minister Hassan Diab uh, a few days after the explosion and a few days after people took to the street and really demonstrated again and again 
that we can only rely on ourselves, these groups, uh, these uh, basically prop, overnight propped up organizations that just want to provide basic food, medication, basic necessities, helping with cleaning homes, making sure that homes are not being robbed. Many of my friends really like just sit guards, if you want, to certain buildings and apartments just to make sure that no one's going to rob them. So I would say, if you're thinking about lines between five, this was the second huge moment in the last year or so, yeah. but also uh, brought students, staff, faculty, uh, members of political parties, different activist groups, artists, journalists, to really all uh, unite just on a, on a simple thing, that what can we do with this disaster? The biggest disaster that anyone has seen in the world, what can we do about it? What can we really push for? And how can we just be there for one another? So I would say it was political, like everything when it comes to political activity and contestation, but also had a very important humanitarian edge because the government was absent, is absent, and it really came down to uh, different people and different groups that they created to take the lead and be able to provide much-needed relief efforts in the first few months. And by the way, these relief efforts are still continuing to this moment, and they've taken on another agenda. Uh, what to do with shortages of medicine, how to find if anyone's in need of blood donations, finding places at hospitals because we're right now at capacity when it comes to ICUs, when it comes to finding beds in different private hospitals and public hospitals. So many of these groups that began before October 17th became emboldened after the beginning of the uprising and were active after the August 4 disaster and catastrophe are also active right now in raising awareness about COVID-19, but also doing very, very important work in connecting individuals with one another to find beds in hospitals, provide food for uh, very, very, I would say, uh, underprivileged families that can, cannot make it from day to day because of the harsh lockdown that we have right now and the government's promised plan of providing assistance, but uh, this government always, always promises things, but when it comes to delivering, that's a different story. Yeah. And in the face of all of this, all these 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 different and devastating challenges, life goes on and, and teaching continues. So how is it that you you are able to to address all of these things with, with many people surely suffering from, from mental health challenges? From, from existential concerns, if you will, but then, of course, addressing also the more the, the more practical, pragmatic concerns about being able to to have enough power, enough energy to 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 join a um, to join a, a video call for a seminar or for a lecture when there are there are rolling blackouts, when energy is cut for for hours each day. I mean, the the challenges are endless. So, what are the I mean, what are the key takeaways that that you would suggest in terms of I I don't want to say thriving, but maybe surviving, negotiating, navigating this type of set of challenges in a pedagogical way, of course. So, Simon, I would say that everything we're doing right now in the world is about survival. In Lebanon, it's about survival and just being able to stay afloat to a certain extent. So it's not only an element of being able to survive, but also having an element of being a role model. I don't like using the word role model, but like to a certain extent, being there for students to show them that there might be a a way out, right? And the way out is very difficult. So what I've done to be quite honest, and what I really am doing in every single class 
I begin with a virtual safe space, right? I, I just before I begin class and we do the introductions, bearing in mind that sometimes you have to log in and log out and sign in and sign out because of the bad internet connection or power outage or students showing up late to class because they didn't have power or they didn't have an internet connection. What I always do, and I've, I've mentioned this in my uh, articles when it comes to teaching and when it comes to uh, basically how to navigate these moments, is really telling students, like, these are a few minutes. It's an open space. I say something positive, right? And I just say, well, I, don't, I really don't want to go into the specifics of what's going on in the world as much as I want to know how you're doing, right? And how you're doing is a very, like, it's like, how are you? You're a very simple, it's a very simple sentence. It's only three words. But what does it do for students? It does wonders. Yeah. And I know this because of emails that I get later on. It's also something that all my students concurrently mentioned in my course evaluation reports, where the best part of the class was not only that assignments were scheduled ahead of time, or I was very understanding when it comes to doing the exams, or very understanding on this, but everyone, and I would say everyone, highlight the part that those five minutes or 10 minutes not only allow them to connect with me as a human being, but as a professor, but also having the space to think through that they're not the only ones going through this problem. And I know this exists, right? And we can talk from now to the end of time about uh, positivity tricks and hacks and what to do. But what worked for me and what I want to share with you is really crafting, putting some time aside in every single session over chat, because some students had audio problems, they could not speak up because they had family members at home, maybe they have one room or two rooms, they don't really have the luxury of being able to speak up and they would apologize. I also opened up that platform via chat and I'd just say like, how are you doing, right? Just tell me what's going on. And some of them would be, well, I'm overwhelmed with courses, I'm overwhelmed with this, I'm worried about opportunities. But the most inspiring part, which also pushed me moving forward, was really in reality that it was helping me, not only helping them, it was also helping me hear students talk about issues that I also was talking about before I left for America, mm-hmm. before I went for my PhD, I was doing my master's at the American University of Beirut, and I also had the same dilemmas, right? I also had the same dilemmas of what's now, what am I going to work in, I'm going to go for a PhD, am I ever going to come back to Lebanon or not? So it allowed me to reconnect with them, but also at the same time tell them that I understand how bad this is. But... It's also something where uh, doing that does not mean you're not going to sit for an exam, you're not going to write an essay, you're not going to do an active learning exercise, you're not going to participate in a simulation exercise. But it's really, again, to a certain extent, blurred those lines where I am a human being, right? I'm not dealing, like, as you know, on Twitter, there are rants and rants and rants by people, like someone writing to a professor and saying that my friend or colleague tested positive, and then the faculty member writing back and saying, well, okay, I'm going to give you one week uh, of an extension. Uh, This is surreal, right? But in in my case, I just wanted to connect with students and be able to maintain that balance of saying, well, it's not about only deadlines or assignments or exams, because when you think about the perfect storm in Lebanon, everything becomes easy. Like, no one's going to be worried anymore about basically getting an A or getting a B or getting a C on a class when everything around you is burning, when, when there are no places yeah. in hospitals, when your parents' savings have really disappeared overnight, uh, when you're living in a country that has shortages of basic vitamins, basic medical supplies. When you think about that, the larger context, what we do in the classroom becomes so easy. And that's something that my students try to internalize is that, yes, we are dealing with everything outside the classroom, but we want to find that space. And all that I asked them to do was really give me these 50 minutes, right? We're meeting three times a week. 
give me these 15 minutes when we're going to have a discussion, when we're going to do an active learning exercise. Think about that as an exit, as an escape, but not a false sense of an escape, right? Not a false sense of toxic positivity where the world is beautiful, it's all rainbows and unicorns and ice cream, and we're fine. No, think about it as a sense of escape where this is how you make the real world better, right? You focus, you get the tools, you have to learn how to write properly, you have to learn how to analyze properly in order to leverage these tools that you're on. And this was one of the most important discussions that I had with students that were graduating, that wrote their senior studies uh, with me, and this was part of the mock simulation that I did for them in terms of a job interview. And this was the entire thing, like how to, to a certain extent, I don't like the toxicity that comes with turning opportunity, turning crises into opportunities. I don't like that kind of language, but I think, well, turning these lived experiences into better opportunities. Sure. And these lived experiences, how you can leverage them if you're, if you're going to be invited for an internship or if you're going to be invited for a job talk or if you're going to be invited to, if you're applying for a master's program. You should put in your statement, in your letter, in your motivation letter that it's not that you've survived in a country that experienced an uprising, a global, a global pandemic, an economic meltdown, repression, shortage of medicine, shortage of power. But what you should reflect on is that you have the tenacity and you have the resilience and the ability to be able to push forward because you have the right tools, the right way to think critically and the right way to analyze critically. So use that, leverage that in your experiences as you move forward. So from a teaching standpoint, being able to create this virtual safe space, being able to, uh, I would say, modify many of the assessment models when it comes to online discussion boards and expecting that we're not going to be able to have a 50-minute normal discussion with all the power outages, but giving students the opportunity to reflect on Blackboard, extending hours for the deadline for submission, taking into account power outages, Taking into account that many of my students, their parents tested positive for COVID-19, do not own three or four homes or even maybe one home to be able to self-isolate, cannot rely on hospitals, were things that we were talking about on a daily basis. But I was able to think about the classroom and I was able to guide my students and encourage them to think about it in a way of saying that this is an escape from a reality that we need to embrace, not a reality that we want to basically forget, but also at the same time to keep in mind that you are warriors you are survivors, and you are fighting very hard. And people will see that, right? Yeah. People uh, in, in Europe, people in, in America that are going to be vetting your applications for jobs or for graduate school are going to be able to understand what does it mean to be a student in Lebanon in 2019, in 2020, and, be, uh, and have the mindset to apply for a graduate program. And I told my students, if I were on the admissions committee side of things, because I was teaching and I was working in America, and I heard to see a letter from someone really like, Having the, 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 the might, the courage, and the ability to submit an application, that doesn't guarantee success 100%, but that's going to go a long way with any admission committee around the world to say, well, how is the student really in their right mind with everything that's been going on in the country still able to see some positivity moving forward? And that's what I've been doing for the last two weeks, really writing, mostly I've been writing recommendation letters for students, talking about that part of what does it mean to finish school, what does it mean to be able to survive and what does yeah. it mean to be able to find some sense of stability in, in the months to come, which honestly in Lebanon, Simon, as you know, it's very hard to stay afloat. And the same issue that I'm describing about my students is something that I feel as a faculty member that I've also discussed with colleagues, that I've also discussed with friends. The idea of like, how is this going to get any better or is it going to get worse? And the obvious conclusion, which is a horrible one, is that we haven't really hit rock bottom yet. 
And then we imagine what rock bottom is. But again, it's like we're moving a goalpost from one point to another. Every time we say this is the worst, you get something else. And after August 4, this has been sort of our uh, low point, if you want, in saying, well, how worse can a government get when it comes to negligence, when it comes to corruption, when it comes to really weak organizations, weak institutions, and can we expect more? And obviously the answer is yes. We're in 2021, and so far things don't look so promising. But again, being able to talk about these things and opening up the space for students to also discuss their everyday problems has been a highlight of teaching political science and international relations in Lebanon and during these times, to be quite honest. Thank you for for sharing that. It's it's so provocative hearing you talk about the, the various challenges and the the ways in which you've tried to circumvent, harness, engage with, disengage from seemingly simultaneously. And I think it's 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 so important that that we have these conversations as as colleagues, friends, peers, that we share these these good practices and we share these types of experiences, not just for ourselves, but to be there for each other, to support each other and to to help in in whatever way possible that we can. Um, so Jeffrey, thank you so much for for doing that. This I think goes down in the annals of Sepad Pod history is the longest podcast that we've recorded. But there's so much to talk about. There's so much more that we could talk about. But we must draw a line under it somewhere. Uh, I'm conscious that that time is running out in Beirut for lunch and teaching and family commitments. So I'll just say a huge thank you for for everything this morning. It's been really fascinating hearing hearing from you. There's a lot to reflect on, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again and, and focusing on your wonderful edited collection, uh, The Middle East in 1958. Thank you, Simon, so much. And just allow me to say that this is a really great and important platform, and thank you for helping me think through many of these issues, because it's different to write about them, it's different to live them, but it's also nice to reflect on them. And in, in a way, much of what I'm describing uh, is common, as you mentioned, with my colleagues and elsewhere. These are issues that we're all facing, uh, regardless of where we are in the world. But when it comes to thinking about specifically Lebanon, when we think about the myriad of crises, uh, it's, it's one of those moments where we are trying to not only survive, but also trying to find if there is some severe lining at the end of all of this. So just allow me to say thank you again. And uh, this has been wonderful on so many levels. And I look forward to having another chat where hopefully there will be much more positive things to talk about, or at least on the road to having more positive news and inklings of hope, if you want, that we can discuss and elaborate and focus on. So thanks again, Simon, for your time and for doing this. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeffrey. And yes, I think hope is something to, um, to aspire to. So as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.